0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, made in 2002. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. John Williams strikes me as someone who has to say no a lot as the most popular film composer in the world he probably gets requests to write music for many many films when 2002 rolled around and John Williams saw the type of work that lay ahead of him with four film scores all to be completed one on top of the other it wouldn't have been out of line for him to say no to one or more of them but which one? Certainly, Williams couldn't say no to Steven Spielberg, who he has been working with since 1973 on all but one of Spielberg's feature films. Spielberg was going to direct two movies in 2002, one right after the other. And he couldn't say no to Attack of the Clones, since Williams felt an understandably strong responsibility to continue the musical path of the Star Wars series. So that left the second Harry Potter movie. Williams has stated in many interviews that he adored the story of Harry Potter and had such fun working on the first film. With the second film beginning the darker journey of Harry and Hogwarts, it would give Williams the opportunity to turn the score on its ear. Saying no to writing music for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was also out of the question. The problem with this was the schedule. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was set for a November 2002 release, exactly one year after Sorcerer's Stone broke a few box office records worldwide. Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can was on the calendar for a Christmas Day release. Both scores needed to be recorded in August and September, which meant not enough time for Williams to work on one, then the other. What Williams did in order to keep his involvement with Chamber of Secrets and Catch Me If You Can was a first for the maestro at this point in his career. Before seeing one frame of film, John Williams asked William Ross to help with the Chamber of Secrets score, anticipating that the responsibilities of writing the score for Catch Me If You Can would keep him from traveling to London for the recording sessions of Chamber of Secrets. William Ross had been heavily involved in film scoring since the early 1990s, but he was widely known as a top-notch orchestrator for composers Alan Silvestri and Michael Kamen, among others. Ross had never worked with John Williams before Chamber of Secrets, and it's not known why Williams wanted Ross to help him with this project. John Williams had never asked another composer to help him with a film assignment outright, but the time crunch meant there was no other option. Ross knew from the very beginning that this was not going to be a co-composer situation. His job was solely to take the notes that Williams wrote and turn them into something fresh for the sequel, or at least somewhat fresh. The plan was to follow the template for Home Alone 2, use existing music from the original film while featuring some new musical material in the sequel. After watching an early edit of the Chamber of Secrets film with director Chris Columbus, Williams knew exactly what scenes would get reused music from Sorcerer's Stone and which scenes required new material. Much of the work for Chamber of Secrets would require reorchestrating and rearranging music from Sorcerer's Stone to make it sound new which would be William Ross's primary job. This would allow Williams to put more focus on Catch Me If You Can while also supervising the work on Chamber of Secrets. From what I could tell, this was the first time Williams worked on two scores at once. At the beginning of his work on Chamber of Secrets, Williams composed music themes for several of the new characters, giving them elaborate concert suites featuring melodies that would be placed into the film score. Working on these concert suites took up most of late June 2002, giving John Williams and William Ross a few weeks to work on what music would appear in the film and how to fashion the soundtrack album. Once the new themes were written, Williams focused a lot of his work on Catch Me If You Can in Boston, while Ross was in London working on adapting music from Sorcerer Stone based on Williams' instructions. It's important to note here that John Williams had the final say on whether or not certain music would go in a scene in Chamber of Secrets. William Ross never was allowed to use an idea without presenting it to Williams first across the Atlantic Ocean. One thing that probably saddened John Williams about not being involved with this score was not getting to conduct the London Symphony Orchestra. Williams wanted the LSO to perform the Sorcerer's Stone score, but the orchestra was not available. After working on Attack of the Clones with the LSO in January, Williams had to put his trust in William Ross, hoping his conducting skills were up to the task of leading the LSO for Chamber of Secrets. When I saw Chamber of Secrets in the theater, it seemed like 90% of the score was reused music from Sorcerer's Stone. It really is only about half of the score's runtime that features music that sounds exactly like it sounded in Sorcerer's Stone. A lot of it is newly recorded versions of thematic material from Sorcerer's Stone, again, very similar to what was done for Home Alone 2. What's surprising about the score for Chamber of Secrets is its length. It's only about two hours of music in a movie that runs two hours and 40 minutes. That's a lot of movie without music, especially since Sorcerer's Stone was pretty much wall-to-wall music. Watching Chamber of Secrets to prepare for this episode was only my second time watching the film. I really disliked it in 2002, feeling that it was pretty much the first film with the lights turned down. Almost every situation is identical to Sorcerer's Stone, including the near-death experience at Quidditch and the confrontation with Voldemort in the bowels of the castle. It's very telling that the next film in the series doesn't address any of the incidents that happened in Chamber of Secrets. Nonetheless, John Williams wanted his music to showcase the darker tone of the film, and you can hear it in the music. The only time the music feels optimistic is in the final scene. Even the rehashes of music from the first film are orchestrated at a different key to highlight the change in tone. It's the new music I will mostly discuss in this episode, and there will be some spoilers coming naturally. According to reviews of the music, as well as the liner notes for the wonderful 2018 CD box set of Williams' music for the Harry Potter series, there are no fewer than seven new themes composed for the film, identical to the number of new themes John Williams wrote for Sorcerer's Stone. But it's really only two of these themes that get any prominence in the film. The others might be heard for about two minutes, and that's about it. Let's start with the most prominent an important theme in the film, the one for the magical bird owned by Dumbledore, called Fox the Phoenix. This bird, as its name suggests, is continually reborn from the ashes it creates whenever it spontaneously bursts into flames. The music is majestic and is written in 3-4 time, just like Harry's theme. We first hear it when Harry enters Dumbledore's secret sanctuary and finds the bird on its perch. Innocently played on woodwinds, before the bird suddenly catches fire. This magical bird returns as a deus ex machina in the finale when Harry is in the Chamber of Secrets about to fight a very large snake controlled by a young Voldemort. Because Harry chooses to not help Voldemort, Fox appears to blind the snake and help Harry defeat him. But it's in the aftermath when we get some of Williams' best work for Chamber of Secrets. After Harry defeats the snake and prevents Voldemort from coming back to life, He realizes he has a fatal cut from one of the snake's fangs. Miraculously, Fox returns to offer healing tears for Harry's wound. The music doesn't present a heroic version of Fox's theme until the bird carries everyone out of the chamber. Give credit to John Williams, William Ross, and the London Symphony Orchestra for striking the right mood with that scene there. So, the Sorcerer's Stone got a very prominent theme in the first movie, which is understandable since it's in the title. But the Chamber of Secrets does not really get one that is played often in the sequel. Instead, Williams takes the stone theme from the first film and makes it the main theme of mystery throughout the movie. One particularly curious placement of this theme comes when Harry finds the entrance to the Chamber of Secrets and opens it. people have theorized that Williams intended to use that theme for all of the devices that Voldemort tries to use to return to the world of the living. The composers who would succeed Williams in the Harry Potter films did not pick up on that and the theme has its last performance in the Chamber of Secrets. Its introduction earlier in the film is a bit longer when we read a message written in blood on a wall that says the chamber has been opened. That wave-like string performance is part of the theme as well, and it helps to keep the spirit of the theme alive as the scene progresses. Though the chamber's opening and its actual purpose, which is harboring an evil monster that will kill those opposed to the one who created the chamber, is supposed to be the catalyst for the danger throughout the film, but the theme never really seems to convey evil. The orchestration makes it sound almost heroic, especially when it's introduced on the horns. Only that string line gives us the goosebumps. The other new themes written for the film got even less playtime than the themes for Fox and The Chamber. One thing that scarcely made its presence known was the one for the elf Dobby, who causes all kinds of mischief in the film. He has a scene lasting almost five minutes in the beginning of the film, and only about a minute of it features music. It's very likely that a decision was made in the final edit to take out some of the music to allow Dobby himself to take center stage. Here's a bit of the theme played when Dobby shows the letters that his Harry's friends have written to him. Dobby's theme is a nice addition to the Harry Potter universe, and the fact that it is rarely used here likely made an impression on composers for future Harry Potter movies in which Dobby appears, because I don't recall thematic material for Dobby used in later films. The last moment for Dobby in the film features Harry tricking Lucius Malfoy into granting Dobby his freedom. This should be a big musical moment, but in the film, the music doesn't make any major statement, particularly with Dobby's theme. There's no heroic rendition of Dobby's theme here as Dobby attacks Lucius Malfoy. So many great British actors clamored for a chance to appear in the film series. Jason Isaacs, who was a standout in The Patriot two years earlier, makes his debut as Lucius Malfoy. Another prominent actor who comes into the Potterverse is Kenneth Branagh, playing Gilderoy Lockhart, the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Lockhart is a celebrity in the Wizarding World, and Branagh plays this role perfectly, suited well to his notoriety as one of the premier Shakespearean actors. Williams supplied a theme for Lockhart, but like the other themes, it's hard to notice it in the film. Here it is in Lockhart's big scene when he begins teaching his first class. felt a connection to the no-ticket music in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with Lockhart's theme. In both cases, the scene has a comical edge to it, and the cellos are always keeping that feel in the performance. That comedy comes in handy for the final performance of Lockhart's theme during the pivotal dueling club scene. As Lockhart prepares to demonstrate the art of dueling with wands, his theme plays as Snape appears as his opponent. Unfortunately, Williams, Ross, or Columbus decided that the rest of the scene involving Snape and Lockhart didn't eat music. Perhaps no one wanted to give away that Lockhart is really a fraud with the comical tones of the theme, so it completely disappears just 66 minutes into the film, having only played for about two minutes of film time. Lockhart has many more scenes left, including Inside the Chamber of Secrets, but nowhere does his theme appear. This would appear to show Williams' growing change in style, moving away from leitmotif composition to writing music for tone and style, or just not having music at all. Besides the music for Fox the Phoenix, there's one other theme that plays every time the character attached to it is on screen. That's the music for the ghost called Moaning Myrtle, who hangs out in one of the girls' bathrooms. Harry, Ron, and Hermione hang out there because no one likes using the bathroom and Myrtle's first appearance highlights why. The music is just as comical as Lockhart's theme, with a female choir backing up the swirling strings and woodwinds. Myrtle's theme gets a longer performance as the ghost talks about her death 50 years earlier when she encountered a strange monster in the very bathroom she haunts. Like other new themes in the film, Myrtle's theme is played so quietly in that last scene that it might have been better to just dial it out completely. But listening to it away from the film is a treat because you can hear a possible connection to Voldemort's theme hiding in the melodic structure. I could point out the possible connection musically, but how to connect the two characters is a little more difficult. A lot of the music that was redone for the second film had little impact except for the final scene, which brings back Hagrid after he was accused of opening the Chamber of Secrets. He offers a tearful thanks to Harry, Ron, and Hermione for proving his innocence, with Williams allowing the London Symphony Orchestra to give us a fully realized performance of the friendship theme from the first film to bring this story to a close. Watching Chamber of Secrets the second time wasn't as bad as it was the first time, but there was still a sense of deja vu that I could not shake. It still felt like I was watching Sorcerer's Stone with the lights turned down. The new themes didn't get the kind of prominence I felt they should have received in the film. And a lot of the people in the year since have suggested that this was William Ross's fault since they believed he was in charge of taking John Williams' musical sketches and turning them into something exciting for the film but we now know that John Williams oversaw every note that was to be recorded and put into the film. So I think this might have been a case of Williams not able to be as involved as he would like to be, so the score became heavily diluted in the film as final edits were completed. The first soundtrack release gave fans a good listening experience, even if it really only gave concert suite performances of some of the major new themes. The 2018 release of that box set expanded on it, but my feelings about The Chamber of Secrets as a film and as a score kept me from wanting to listen to it. So, the two CDs for Chamber of Secrets went untouched until I had the responsibility to open it, to research it for this episode. I'm glad I did, because now I have a slightly better appreciation for the music written for the film, and I understand the process that created the music. Despite the similarities between the first two films in terms of plot, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was a big hit around the world, following, of course, the growing popularity of the novels. The movie made $879 million worldwide, just $100 million shy of what Sorcerer's Stone made. The movie ranked second in its box office take for all films made in 2002, just behind the second Lord of the Rings movie. This would mark the first time in history that three films with John Williams' music placed in the top ten box office rankings for one year. Yes, all these years, and never has this ever happened with John Williams' music. Though Chamber of Secrets would be a success, this would mark the last time Chris Columbus would direct a Harry Potter film. He felt the same feeling Steven Spielberg had when Spielberg turned down making Hook in the mid-1980s, stating that he hadn't seen his own kids in about two years. But Columbus would stay on with the Potterverse as producer of the next film, which helped convince John Williams to continue with the series as well. Sadly, it was the final film for Richard Harris, who portrayed Alba's Dumbledore. When you watch the film, you can see that Harris looks a little weaker in Chamber of Secrets, but he didn't receive his Hodgkin's disease diagnosis until after completing work on Chamber of Secrets. The expectation was that Harris would recover in a year's time to start work on the next Potter film, but Harris died on October 25, 2002 at 72 years old. Harris was undergoing treatment for this disease around the same time that recording sessions began for Chamber of Secrets. Those recording sessions wrapped up in early September, around the same time that Williams was stepping up to the podium himself to begin recording the score to Catch Me If You Can. We'll talk about that score in detail on the next episode, and I have a very special guest joining me as well. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you, and I hope you're excited about it as well. Until then, please feel free to send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com with any suggestions or comments you have about this podcast. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and post a comment on the Podbean app. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, the baton is down.